Hi, everyone. My name is Karen Lee, and welcome to The Next Page, the podcast of the UN Geneva Library and Archives. Well, it is definitely no secret that we at the Library and Archives love exploring the subject of multilateralism. After all, at the very heart of multilateralism is all about activating the voices of all. The idea of multilateralism and its capacity to bring the nations of the world together is arguably needed now more than ever. However, standing on the global stage can be intimidating. Within a plethora of voices, opinions, and needs, it can be challenging to take place at the table. In today's episode, we are joined by Ambassador Umej Batia, who is the permanent representative of Singapore to the UN in Geneva and the UN in Vienna, among many other roles. Joining us virtually, Ambassador Umej speaks with our director, Francesco Pisano, and gives special insight on multilateralism from the perspective of a small state. Ambassador Umej assures us, though, that Singapore is far from small in its ambitions and its commitment to multilateralism. He speaks on turning vulnerability into opportunity, the relation between multilateralism and globalization, and the bigger picture of macrolateralism and the smaller one of microlateralism. Ambassador Umej also shares about his new book, Our Name is Mutiny, a piece of creative historical nonfiction that explores the Singaporean experience in a very particular time in history, the era between 1907 and 1915. Don't forget, there are more resources linked in the podcast notes, both on Ambassador Umesh's book and his work. So, here we go. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the next page of the podcast of the Library Archives of UN Geneva. I am extremely lucky today to have with me Ambassador and friend of the library, Umesh Batia, who is the Ambassador and Permanent Representative of Singapore to the UN in Geneva and a lot of other places, including the UN in Vienna. He's an extremely busy man, but a friend of our library, and we're so pleased to have you, Umesh on our podcast. First of all, thank you. And secondly, could you introduce yourself to our audience so they know a little bit more about you before we go on the topic of today, which is be at the table or be on the menu, how multilateralism is seen through the eyes of small states. Over to you, Umesh. Well, Francesco, thank you very much for inviting me to this wonderful podcast. It's a great initiative. And um, I'm glad you've chosen this topic about, you know, being on the table or being on the menu, because what we can hopefully engage in today is some good food for thought. I have been Singapore's ambassador and permanent representative to uh, the UN office in Geneva for just about a year now. And I'm also the permanent representative for Singapore to the UN and the Vienna office for a year. I'm resident representative to the IAEA and um, a couple of other roles as well. But I think my most significant job here is I am Singapore's envoy, um, as it were, to the UN outside of New York. And Geneva and Vienna um, historically focus very much on the technical issues. Well, we have the Human Rights Commission as well. So there's a very varied scope uh, for us here. I'm also a published author. I'm a historian. 
and um, it's something that keeps one part of my brain active when I'm not doing diplomacy. And I'm also the father of two wonderful teenagers. So that's me in a nutshell. And that's fantastic. And thank you for, for making reference to both your activity as a historian, writer, and also your, your children that actually are on your official, on your official CV. And I was uh, very positively impressed by, by that being a father myself. It's time to disclose to our audience, Umesh, where the title comes from. Be at the table or be on the menu is actually a quote from Professor Jaya Kumar, who has been one of the public figures, he still is, he's alive, he's one of the public figures uh, of your country, he's a professor, he's been ambassador, he's been deputy prime minister, minister of foreign affairs, he has covered all the bases. And um, he had this feeling that small states' foreign policy is dominated by many things, but one among them is this constant vulnerability. And so multilateralism, and diplomacy have distinct importance for small states in a different way that doesn't apply to large powers or other countries that do not have the profile of a small state like Singapore. So why don't we start our conversation by talking about what is the value of multilateralism when seen from small states? Well, I think, Francesco, you know, there's a concept of vulnerability, uh, which you refer to, but we prefer to look at it as opportunity as well. And that's why we say we have to be at the table. We have to make sure that diplomatically we're active, we're not passive. There are limits to power based on your size. But if you make sure that you keep focused on where the action is happening, where the discussions are going, try to shape diplomatic initiatives, then I think you can make up for your small size. But the fact is that to some extent, we can say size is destiny. To some extent, size is not destiny. You want and need a rules-based multilateral order and underpinned by centerpiece international organizations like the United Nations. And this has actually just benefited uh, historically big and small states for over seven decades. Now, there are many imperfections in the multilateral system, and we can talk about them for many hours. We can share all the ideas, gone about all the criticisms. but we are undoubtedly better off because multilateralism, because of the UN. I think that's quite clear. We haven't had, since the Second World War, another major world war. We've had lots of advances in global health. We've had a tremendous push in terms of standardization in many areas. And so that's why Singapore has been a supporter of multilateralism since our independence 55 years ago. Now, what's so crucial and is taken for granted Singapore is small. We're not much bigger than Lake Geneva. <laughs> but sovereign equality, that principle, just trying the UN, ensures that all countries have an equal voice, technically. Equal voice on issues of global importance. Of course, in some institutions like the UN Security Council, which I served on more than 20 years ago, you have the veto power. And there's a very specific reason for that. But at the same time, for a small state like Singapore, the opportunity to contribute on matters of global interest, the ability to ensure our views are extremely important. That's why we say we have to be the table. We try to get in the table, be credible with our ideas, try to essentially contribute something of value uh, on whatever issue there is. And, and you have to also remember that small states are actually the majority in the United Nations. And I'm happy to talk about, you know, how Singapore has created a forum of small states composed of 108 members, which is the majority of the UN. 
to help make sure that our interests are represented as well. I think it will be very interesting uh, to hear more about the forum. Just before we go that, maybe you can link into the answer to, to the question I'm about to put to you. And the question is the following. In one of his um, uh, passages in his book, Professor Jayakumar that I mentioned before says, in the UN, when I was there as permanent representative, I found that the, the odds were stacked severely against small states. Now, you've been in that position before in the UN in New York, and you are in the same position here in Geneva. Do you feel that that sentence written in the 70s is still true today? Now, I feel it's true today, and it will always be true that if you're a small state, you'll always be at a disadvantage. That's quite clear because you don't necessarily have the resources. Um, you don't have necessarily have the networks for a typical small state. And that's why you have to decide, well, do I go it alone? No. If you're a big state, if you're a big power, technically you can afford to go it alone. But just to, to turn the table slightly, Francesco, I think today, with today's problems, whether you're big or small, it doesn't matter. You can't go it alone. And we're in a situation today with the pandemic, with problems with the global commons, where you can be a big power, but a unilateral approach to a global problem is going to get you out of it. And, you know, even if, even if you take a particular country, you take the U.S., if one state in the U.S. had a successful approach to the current pandemic virus, that doesn't matter because at the end of the day, the other states are not dealing with it successfully. What does it matter? So if one wealthy state in the U.S. did with it well, and the others didn't, it couldn't carry on business. It couldn't open its borders. And we face the same issue today. So I think there is some truth that the weight stacked against small states, but that's where small states come together. That's where Singapore 1992 in New York brought together the Forum of Small States. And this Forum of Small States was actually came together with just a couple of ambassadors from small island states. And it was supposed to be an informal cross-regional grouping to share information, learn from each other's experience, and support each other in candidatures. One of the biggest issues then, as in now, whenever there's a candidate for UN Secretary General post or UN agency post, normally it is the larger countries that are able to put in your candidates. And, and, and this is a matter of social science fact. You can have all sorts of studies that show, and you, are, you know as well as I know, that in the UN certain agencies are reserved for certain three, five powers, so on and so forth. So again, the small states needed to come together and say, look, these here are voice, here are candidates, support each other. And of course, we, for Singapore, we wanted to make sure that uh, we don't just put forward small state candidate, we just don't put forward a small state position just for the sake of it. There had to be merit, there had to be um, substance, and it had to help interests of uh, a rules-based multilateral order at large. Umesh, let's stay for a second longer on, on multilateralism. When you look at the setup of the international community today, there are several agencies, there are several international organizations working sometimes together, most of the time not really together, on a number of challenges that have undoubtedly become global challenges, affect everyone, cannot be easily solved by any one or a small coalition of states. So when you look at it from your uh, observation back of being a permanent representative, 
What do you see as a trend in international cooperation through the UN system? Is this system at large, not the Secretariat alone, serving the purpose better or worse over time when you see it as, um, as a permanent representative, as a diplomat? Not so much small state or big state, but um, there is this constant interaction between domestic interests and domestic agendas and priorities and what we call the global agenda. If you look at Agenda 2030, for example, that's an example of global agenda where the interest is larger the interest of the planet. It's really a global interest to solve things like climate change and, and, and poverty eradication, for example. Now, seeing from a diplomat, is the system working fine? Are there things that you are perceiving as trends that are upwards or downwards? Well, I think very broadly, the global multilateral order, as we know it now, right now, has been under pressure for some time. That's quite clear. And some very serious cracks are beginning to show. Whether it's the UN, the G20, the G7, multilateral or plurilateral um, setups. That, that's, that's, a, that's a basic fact. But also, the global consensus behind multilateralism and the benefits of a rules-based order, the benefits of globalization have started to wane, have started to weaken seriously in face of forces like rising populism, nationalism, and protectionist sentiments. And the reason for that is because if many countries in the world today, if certain national governments don't deliver the goods, populist movements come in and say, look, we're going to promise you something else. And then they point the figure at international organizations, multilateral organizations, which are very easy bogeyman. Because they say in one lump, you represent global interests and not local interests. So it's, a, it's an easy political argument to sell, but the reality is far more textured. And I think what is at bottom is rising inequality in societies. And that's one weakness of globalization. Globalization is not able to spread its fruits. So, I mean, something like the Sustainable Development Goals, you know, the UN's vision for 2030, that's important. I mean, it's very wide ranging, but at core, if rising inequalities in societies which are being exacerbated now by COVID-19 are addressed, these populist sentiments, nationalist sentiments, anti-multilateral, anti-globalization only go. But if these sentiments are allowed to grow, we risk, and right now we are at that cusp, we are at an inflection point of history and we are at an infection point of history. We turn our backs on the lessons of history. And what we will end up with is we will return to a world where might is right, where unilateralism prevails. Whether we like it or not, whatever we do or say, we're going to go through a period of that's going to be especially volatile, uncertain, and dangerous. That's where we are now. So the issue is how can we build up some very basic structures of engagement, build up trust? How do we do that? And there are two ways of looking at it. One way is saying, okay, let's bring in more multilateralism. Multilateralism is a very fuzzy topic. And actually, multilateralism, you can divide it into what I call macrolateralism or microlateralism. So what is macrolateralism? Macrolateralism is where multilateralism is that by the big powers. And they say, well, we decide and everyone follows. That's one way of looking at it. If you look at microlateralism, the example, the good examples of smaller states, smaller powers, influences the bigger powers to sort of like follow and emulate these examples and um, provide some kind of order. Now, the reality is 
we're going to have a mix of both. But either would work as long as there are countries that come together, cooperate, and begin to have some kind of concerted international cooperation to deal with the current pandemic, to deal with the other tragedies of the commons that the world faces. Thank you so much for this. I, I would like to turn to the author and the historian. Um, the library has your book, your latest book, and, and congratulations. You just appeared actually uh, in, in, uh, from, from the press, and the title is Most Attractive, Our Name is Mutiny by Umesh Bhatia. So if our listeners want to go and take a look at that book, I, I certainly recommend it. And um, let's look into how you wrote this book, on, which is basically the history of uh, the Singaporean experience, which is full of inspiring episodes uh, and tales. So tell us a little bit about the book, also starting perhaps well, why you decided to write this book now. Well... It's a piece of creative nonfiction. And in a nutshell, I look at events that happened more than 100 years ago, between 1907 to 1915. Now, many people think this is a rather obscure era, 1907 to 1915. But actually, it was a heyday of globalization. You could travel around the world without a passport. It was a time when you had empires like the British Empire, you had the Imperial Germany, uh, the Japanese, uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. You also had the, Amer the rise of America. You had changing tectonic plates globally. But what was interesting was I looked at how a group of um, uh, rebels or radicals or revolutionaries based in San Francisco, Indian radicals based in San Francisco, started a movement against the British Empire to topple the British Empire in India. So these were Indian expatriate rebels in San Francisco. And they started this movement to get onto ships and go back to India and topple the, the British Raj. And this only really worked because during the First World War, which started in 1914, they had the opportunity to jump on these ships while the British were distracted and tried to mount a revolution. On the way to India, from San Francisco through Pacific Ocean to Japan, they stopped over in Singapore and a couple of other places in Southeast Asia. And at that time, Singapore was part of a large British empire. They said the sun never set the British empire. And the British put garrisons of soldiers. But most of the European soldiers were fighting in France, in the trenches of World War I. So they had Indian, British Indian garrisons. So these rebels came from San Francisco and they got try to get the Southeast Asian garrisons to rise up. They only succeeded in Singapore. So I tell the story of how that succeeded before they went to India. And then the revolution ended up fizzling out. So one part of the story that's very interesting is that if you actually think about the United Nations, and, and this story is happening before the League of Nations, before the United Nations, but if you actually think about the United Nations, uh, and to some extent the League of Nations, a large part what these international organizations try to deal with were the problem of, in the case of League of Nations, minority rights, and in the case of United Nations, decolonization, the end of empire, and all these issues. Now, I'm, I cover these global issues before you had any international organizations, apart perhaps from the uh, ITU, International Telegraphic Union. And I look at this world 
And I try to tell a global story of people moving around, forces moving around, powers moving around, but no real international organization. You had empires without international organization. And the story I tell shows kind of collective anarchy when there is no international organization. That's one key sub-theme of that story. What do you think is left in today's Singapore of these periods of mutiny that animated the nation in the early days? Well, I think one key aspect is that vulnerability is still there. You know, people know the story of how the British uh, were defeated by the Japanese in the Second World War. But not many people know that in the First World War, during the Singapore mutiny, uh, the Japanese were allies of the British and had to, in many ways, Japanese ship and Japanese volunteers, at that time there were many Japanese living in Singapore, helped the British put down this mutiny. So there was that essential vulnerability. And part of, the, part of the lesson for Singapore today is that if you don't have your own defense, you don't have a strong defense force, if you don't have a united citizenry, if you rely on outside or external defense, you're vulnerable. That's, that's part of the story. There is another author and ambassador like you I like, and, uh, and I, I owe it to you if I got to, to know him, is Bilahari Kauzikan. Yes. And um, uh, he wrote uh, a fantastic book uh, called Singapore is Not an Island. Yes. And in that book, uh, at one point in one of his chapters, um, he relates his experience at Singapore represented to, to the UN in New York. Just before that, he has, an, he has a forward-looking part of the book in which he wonders whether the future will be multipolar. And I, yeah. I put that question to you. He doubts it, actually. But uh, going back to foreign policy, Singapore, multilateralism and, and, and international cooperation, seen from the observation deck of uh, a small state, when you look towards the future, is the world going to be multilateral and if, uh, or multipolar? And if so, what is the relative positioning of, of small states in that projected future? Well, the world is going to be multipolar. That's quite clear. I mean, poles of power can be seen as, of course, military, economic, political, but essentially at base, no diplomacy can be carried off a barren rock. You need to have a strong economic base to be taken seriously. Now, an example of the US. Uh, when the UN was formed, the US had about 40% of the share of global GDP in 1945. Even until 1960, the U.S. still had about 40% of the share of global GDP. Today, that's come down to about 23%. And I think you also have um, other powers. You have India, you have Russia, you have China, uh, you have Brazil, who all contribute to the share of global GDP. Now, China is, of course, it's got a very strong economy. India is moving along as well. Um, China has a demographic issue. Uh, it's a challenge of basically getting rich before it gets old, whereas India has uh, less of a demographic issue. But the bottom line is that if you look 10 years down the road, current pandemic might change things. No, no country is going to have more than 20% of the global share of GDP. Just, just if you look at demographics, the sheer dynamics of it. So I think the future of the world is going to be multipolar. Now, when you have a multipolar world, for some people say um, you could have a, a non-polar world, but that doesn't make sense because there are poles of power that are going to determine uh, global issues. Now, in a multipolar world, the, the question is, are we going to have a multipolar world which 
each, which is coupled together or decoupled. Today, one of the biggest issues, especially in the U.S.-China relationship, there's a lot of talk about decoupling. There's a lot of talk about separate, you know, trade wars, separate trading systems, separate technologies, uh, the world facing off against each other. And I think the, the idea that is normally promoted is that it's this dramatic world of face-offs. Now, as I said earlier, the world is going through a very dangerous and uncertain time and period. But the bottom line is that it is still very intertwined. Now, what the pandemic has shown is that you need to diversify your supply chains. That's very clear. Because a, a single point of weakness, a single point of dependence isn't going to work. That's very clear. And that was true of uh, when uh, the world was scrambling for uh, masks, personal protective equipment, COVID-19. So I think you'll see more diversification supply chain where you no longer have the old logic of just in time. But can the world really decouple? Can we really work separate spheres? I mean, um, you can you can use WhatsApp and WeChat. That might be separated. But at the end of the day, it's, we're still using the same technology. I mean, whether it's 5G from this country or 5G from that country, we're still one world. And I think we will still have to converge. We're not going to separate. Now, I think it will be multipolar, but it's going to be a bit more messy and fragmented in time to come without clear definition. We're also going to see a world, I think, which is in three, four years' time, if someone is listening to me, I'm not so sure whether we are all going to be traveling on planes as we did in 2019, the same way, at the drop of a hat. I don't think so. But I think at the same time, it'll be a more messy configuration. But I think the bottom line is that the different poles of power will realize that there's more benefit to cooperation because the global issues that we face right now, the biggest global issue, the pandemic, when we deal with COVID-19 and we manage to find vaccine or effective therapeutics, the fact is that the way our system of economic development, of exploitation of natural resources means we have a spillover at another stage. We might be better prepared for it, but we're still going to face for it. So it'll be a multipolar world. And our vision of that, uh, at least for Singapore, in, in that multipolar world, we're going to try and see what new structures of cooperation we can build. And that's going to be the real challenge. Because global interconnected, interconnectedness is something which no one wants to see cut off. But how do you do it effectively? How do you have a well-functioning system? And that is the key question. When you look at the narrative and the discussion that was going on just before the pandemic, one of the clear milestones for, you know, when talking about the future was 2030. We were trying to refer many, many things to 2030 and beyond from here to 2013. Of course, the SDGs are the, 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 the example of that, but there is also uh, the African agenda, 2063, for example. So do you feel that the, uh, the pandemic in itself has generated a new way of looking at things in the way derailed the future that we were imagining uh, and it's, it's codified in Agenda 2030. Do you think that project is being derailed or prolonged for some reasons, made longer by the pandemic or made easier? There are some analysts who say that actually Agenda 2030, some of the goals have become easier, better understood, more favored by many more people because of the pandemic. What is your feeling? 
Well, I think first and foremost, let's be very clear about uh, Agenda 2030. No one expects the issues of us to have a 2030 world in 2030. It's always aspirational and it's important. I think, you know, I always say when uh, the ancient Egyptians built their pyramids, what were they for? They were to mobilize, focus the people and say, look, let's work together towards some structure. And in a way, our, our Agenda 2030, our SDGs are global pyramids for the world. And they're important pyramids. I, I think there's, there's so many parts of the world which are crying out for help, which are crying out for solutions. You know, just look at drinking water, safe drinking water, toilets, some basic issues are still not there. COVID-19 is now the focus for the whole world. Now, before we came up with this, before we faced this problem, not many people were thinking about issues like uh, vaccinating in the developing world. Not many people were thinking about the great work that organizations were doing to make, to make sure that many parts of the uh, low-income countries were getting vaccinated, that children were not dying of preventable diseases. So today, in fact, you're seeing new awareness that if we are going to get a vaccine for COVID-19, it cannot just be done on the basis of uh, one country buying up all the doses. And one of the things that Singapore has pushed, and my Prime Minister talked about at the Global Vaccine Summit in June, was vaccine multilateralism. And we're working closely, we work closely with the WHO, with Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, and SEPI, uh, which is the upstream part uh, compared to the downstream part, Gavi for vaccine. We've been working together on this global COVAX facility. Singapore and Switzerland actually co-chair the so-called Friends of the Facility. And what this Friends of the Facility is doing is trying to shape unprecedented mechanism to make sure that as many countries as possible, whether they're high income, middle income, or lower income, all come together and are vaccinated with a wide portfolio of vaccines of different platforms. So this is something unprecedented. We're designing it right now. And it comes under the rubric of what I call vaccine multilateralism. It's created greater awareness of problems of the developed world and the need to move as one world together towards uh, Agenda 2030. Thank you for that. I think these the, these points are, are very powerful. And at the time that we are, we are uncertain about the future so much, I think it's important to continue the discussion on the validity of the SDGs and Agenda 2030 as a... I like this image of the uh, of the pyramid, model pyramid for the world. As we draw to a close with this podcast, maybe you want to offer our audience some final thoughts or a key message that you want them to to remember a message from you or a message from Singapore uh, that you want to stick with our audience. Yeah, I think what I want to say is that for a country like Singapore, our vision of multilateralism is a very simple one. We'd like to see a world where all countries can interact, conduct free trade on the basis of fair competition, focus on building infrastructure, on um, health and education, on leaving no one behind, on social safety nets. And I think the post-pandemic world is in many ways going to accelerate the pre-existing trends, but it's also an opportunity for us to look afresh at the challenges that we took for granted and try and implant uh, a more positive vision. But I also have to say that having said that, if we don't 
take the lesson of COVID-19 so the need for a well-functioning and robust multilateral system is more important than ever, then we'll never take that lesson. And I hope we do. Before we close, I want to remind our audience that uh, both you and your mission are on social media, and particularly on Twitter, and your, your handle is at Batia Umej, and Batia is B-H-A-T-I-A, and your mission is at S-G-P Mission, that is S-G-P Mission G-V-A. And so there, there is a wealth of information and hints, and also reference to your book. I, rem- I, I like to recall the title here is Our Name is Mutiny by Umesh Bhatia. Ambassador Bhatia and friend of the library, I thank you so much for taking your time to be with us and with your audience today on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for this wonderful opportunity and um, really scintillating conversation with you as always. Thanks, Francesco.